This podcast is brought to you by National Marriage Week, an annual campaign held every February 7th through 14th that brings together churches, organizations, and individuals with the message that marriage is worth it. Both for married couples struggling in their relationship and for people considering marriage, National Marriage Week seeks to convey what research tells us. Marriage leads to greater wealth, health, longevity, and happiness, and provides the best outcomes for raising children and reducing poverty. Find out how you can champion marriages in your community at nationalmarriageweekusa.org. We couldn't understand, Walter, why the nightclubs we used to party in look more like Revelation 5-9 than Jesus' club, the church. And so we begin to ask questions about why the church was the most segregated institution in America. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Racial justice is one of those very complex topics and there's clear biblical guidance. Dr. Derwin Gray shares practical tools for pursuing racial justice that flows from a biblical foundation. Here is our conversation. It's great to connect with you again, uh, Pastor Derwin. We we had the opportunity, obviously, to work together uh, at the Flourish Conference, and I have to say your presentation was really inspiring. It was convicting. Uh, and I'm sure many uh, who are listening know you, but um, they might not know parts of your story. So as we get going, could you tell us a little bit more about how God led you and your wife into ministry? Yeah, well, thank you, Walter. It's an honor and privilege to uh, to be with you. And uh, I really love being at the Flourish Conference and also being on the, the board. So, uh, so my wife and I, uh, we just celebrated 30 years of marriage. Um, we shockingly met at Brigham Young University. She's from Montana. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. So you got a black kid from a urban context meeting a white girl from Montana at a Mormon school, and neither one of us were Mormon. Mm. Yet we met my second semester, my freshman year, fell in love pretty quick, ended up getting married my senior year in college. And so she was an athlete, uh, she was also valedictorian in the dietetics department. I was not valedictorian in anything, by the way. And so I ended up having a great career there. She had a great career there. But neither one of us grew up in the church. Mm. Um, her God was performance and my God was football. Mm. And the thing about performance is eventually your performance lets you, lets you down. Mm. And eventually football will let you down as well. Mm. But I had a teammate with the Indianapolis Colts in 1993. His nickname was Steve Grant, or his real name was Steve Grant, but his nickname was the Naked Preacher because every day after practice, he'd take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist. And then he'd ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm going, bro, do you know you're half naked? (laughs) So I tried to avoid him, but one faithful afternoon, uh, he asked me a question to change the trajectory of my life. He said, uh, rookie D. Gray, do you know Jesus? And I began a five-year conversation in which he patiently communicated the gospel to me in word and in deed. Mm. 
And also things in my life, the life that I built on sand began to collapse when the storms came. And what were those storms? The first storm was, was this is I couldn't get over the fact that my dad was never around. I, I wanted to prove him wrong and living to prove someone wrong usually makes your heart wrong. Mm. Um, I couldn't get over the fact that I knew I needed forgiveness, but I didn't know how to get it. Um, couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. Um, NFL stands for not for long. Mm. So I knew my career would end. Who would I be? But as the naked preacher shared the gospel with me, embodied the gospel on August 2nd, 1997, my fifth year in the NFL training camp with Indianapolis Colts, Anderson, Indiana at Anderson University, small dorm room all by myself. After lunchtime, I called my wife on the phone. I said, sweetheart, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my born again moment. Like I felt the divine love of God just overwhelm me. And I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was different. I couldn't articulate it, but there was difference. And for three nights, I just wept. I would go back to my dorm room after practice, and I would just weep at the thought of how could someone like Jesus love somebody like me? Simultaneously, there was a woman at my wife's job who was reaching her for Christ. So in 1998, I signed as a free agent to play for the Carolina Panthers. That moved us to Charlotte. And we thought, you know, hey, um, I'll play for four more years, make it 10 years, and I'm done. But I ended up only playing one more year. And then in 1999, my wife and I decided it's time for me to retire from the NFL. And we're like, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I got invited to go speak at a youth event in Columbia, South Carolina. I argued and cried with God because I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. Mm. And I just sense God saying, listen, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk, but you have mm -hmm. to go to see that happen. So I went, I didn't know what a testimony was. I didn't know what preaching was. I just shared what my life was like before Christ, how I met Christ, how he loved me and forgave me. And do you want that as well? And the Holy Spirit blew through that place and a ton of kids got saved and the youth pastor who bought, who bought me in said, get ready. God's going to start using you. And the phone just began to ring off the hook. So my wife used her leadership administration gifts, and I used my gift to teach. And we got plugged into a local church and I was traveling the country speaking and God was using me. But in about 2004 or five, both of us got really disappointed in that we couldn't understand, Walter, why the nightclubs we used to party in look more like Revelation 5, 9 mm. than Jesus's club, the church. Mm. And so we begin to ask questions about why the church was the most segregated institution in America. And the answers we got were number one, beneath Jesus, number two, sub-biblical, and number three, didn't reflect the gospel at all. And so we sense God saying, well, you can criticize or you can create. And so that led us on the journey of eventually uh, launching Transformation Church in Indianland, South Carolina, February 7, 2010. And since then, we've grown into a movement of multiple, multiple thousands of people of every nation, tribe and tongue. And I want to be very, very clear with what I say next. We are a multi-ethnic church because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We believe that Jesus is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. We believe that God made a covenant with Abraham to give him an every nation, tribe, and tongue family. Jesus comes through his sinless life, substitutionary atoning death on the cross, his resurrection and the sending of the spirit, this multi-ethnic family that is redeemed and sealed by the spirit, learn to love each other. And that becomes a testimony that we are his disciples and our unity bears witness that the father sent the son. And so it became quick to us that there were some strong, dark idols of idolatry and prejudice and racism within the church. Mm. And so we believe God has blessed Transformation Church with incredible influence and growth to be a beacon of light to say what happened in the first century can happen in the 21st century. Derwin, that is so inspiring. Um, You've given us a lot to chew on. So I'm going to pick a few things to um, draw upon. One one is you had this very powerful experience of personal transformation, the forgiveness of your sin. Yes. Uh, And yet you didn't leave it simply at the personal level. I mean, there was this journey that you went on about um, transformation, transformation of society, transformation of the church to look more like Revelation 5.9, this kind of beautiful uh, vision of the kingdom. And, and then you've already referred to several verses that have been instrumental. Um, I, I want to camp out a little bit more on this notion of the gospel having not just a personal impact, but this kind of corporate communal yeah. impact. Um, work that out for us What in, in both ways. Why is that such a hard thing for us often to get And um, why is it so central for us to get? Yeah. So the first thing that I would say is this, is individual salvation only exists so God can have the family he promised Abraham. Mm. Individual salvation only exists so God the Father can have a family. That's one. Number two, why it's so hard for us to get is because dark demonic powers want us to reduce the cross to a simple transaction. And here comes a big word. We are children of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment started by Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Pre-modern was because of the great I am, I am. So the enlightenment puts man at the center. Pre-enlightenment is theocentric. Now, move a couple of hundred years. We as Americans, we love business products. And what we've done is we sell people Jesus. Well, if you trust him, you'll have peace and you'll have this. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. And it's very, very individualistic. Whereas when you read the biblical narrative, it's not broken down into different parts that we can choose. Jesus comes as the new Adam to represent us, the fallen offspring of Adam, so that the family Adam was supposed to create comes into being. And so Jesus, the God man who's 
100% man comes to show us what humanity is to become. And so the people of God looks like the cross. We're vertically connected to God, reconciled to God, and we're reconciled to each other horizontally. Therefore, the ministry and mission of Jesus is now our ministry and mission because we're literally the body of Christ. And so typically, as evangelicals, as Protestants, we tend to focus only on the vertical beam of the cross. And I say this humbly and respectfully. Penal substitutionary atonement is a reality, but that's not the only reality of the work of Christ. Jesus rewrites our story, recapitulation. Jesus reconciles us to his father and to one another. I mean, there's there, the cross is so much bigger than just little old Derwin is redeemed. I'm redeemed to be a part of a redeeming family that is now the presence of God on earth until the consummation of new heaven and new earth. And so I think the devil has strategically said, hey, look, it's easier to teach people Romans Road and make it an individual transaction. Then that way you can kind of have Jesus. But if you still want to practice injustice, go for it, because it's about your personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, we have more than a personal relationship with, with, with Christ. We're in the new covenant. And a covenant means God has responsibilities to us, and our responsibility is to follow him. And we have a God who said, you are salt and you are light. And so people who are justified by the blood of Christ spill their blood on earth to embody justice. Wow. You've given us, again, so much to chew on, uh, kind of the history of uh, the Enlightenment is centering the, the human, the, the, the man-centric as opposed to theocentric view of God and how that now clashes, that philosophical tradition clashes with kind of the American business psyche. Um, and then it produces this truncated gospel that you describe. Um, so... We're with you on this. The cross is much more expansive than um, substitutionary atonement. Jesus dies for you personally. It's this covenant, this family. Um, mm -hmm. Why the issue of multi-ethnicity and race, though? Um, yeah. Because there are perhaps different ways that we can emphasize it. You know, family, multi-generational. Uh, maybe that could be the dominant motif, but you you often talk about this in terms of the need to deal with segregation or this multi-ethnic vision of the church. Yeah. Um, why that? Yeah. So uh, I am a football player and I've been trained to study the playbook and being on God's team, he has a playbook and it's the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is very, very clear that the human race, which is comprised of a multitude of ethnicities, there's only one race. But the human race has a multitude of ethnicity. Your ethnicity is a shared language. It's a culture journeying through history. And so ethnicities are a beautiful reality. Well, because of this virus called sin and because of dark demonic powers, we have, since the dawn of time, learned how to oppress, enslave, murder, rape, and kill each other based on class and based on 
culture. So even when we look at the people of Israel, they were enslaved by the Africans, the Egyptians, right? So, so, so we see a slavery motif. And when God sets them free through the pass over the nation of Israel is told, go to the promised land. But before they got to the promised land, there were Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Prezivites who wanted to wipe them out. And then when they were in the promised land through disobedience, the Babylonians took them into captivity, Jewish diaspora. And then by the time of Jesus, another Gentile power is dominating the Jewish people. And so we see that if we remove ethnicity or race from the Bible, we literally have no Bible. Hmm. And so we know that at the end of history in the new heaven and new earth, it's every nation, tribe, and tongue in fulfillment with God's covenant with Abraham. So the issue is not why talk about race or ethnicity. I think the bigger question is how have we allowed it to be so silent when God uses it as a megaphone? So just think about this, Walter. Imagine if there's no Samaria and Samaritan woman at the well, that Cornelius is not Italian, that Pontius Pilate is not Roman, Scythians, barbarians, Canaanites, Hittites, Hittites, Babylonians. Like you literally have no Bible. Even Jesus himself is born into a ethnicity, the Jewish people. And so I think whatever dominant culture there is, people within that dominant culture, if there's been oppression of minority groups, there's like this shame as though they themselves did it. And so our church at Transformation Church is probably 55 to 58% white and then everything else. So one of the things that I talk to my brothers and sisters about that I pastor who are, who are white is don't be guilty about America's past. You didn't own slaves. You didn't do those things. Now, we can mourn those things, Matthew 5, 4, and you can also acknowledge that for the majority culture in America, you had benefits from the oppression of others. So I, as a black man, own a home in Charlotte, North Carolina. This area used to belong to the Catawba Native Americans. So I'm benefiting from what happened to them. I can't go back and change the past, but I can advocate for my Native American brothers in the present. And I think that's what the gospel does. Walter, is the good news of Jesus gives us a heart to love the world. One of our plumb lines here at Transformation Church is this, treat everybody like Jesus died for them because he did. And if Jesus died for them because he loved them, then every human being is worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. I don't have to agree with you to love you, but I am called to love you. And by the way, it's love for you that's going to lead you to the one who taught me how to love. And so building a multi-ethnic church, and by, by the way, we're multi-ethnic and multi-generational. This for us flows from two of Jesus's great commands. First, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And watch this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It makes a cross, love God, 
love self, which leads to humility because of my union life in Christ, love your neighbor. Well, my neighbor flows into the great commission. Go make disciples of all ethnos. So my neighbor is going to be multi-ethnic and multi-generational. So the great commandment and the great commission is the vision that drives us forward in what we do, why we do. And because I didn't grow up in the church, I didn't think it was optional for me not to lead a church that tried to reach everybody that's in our community. Mm. You have situated this um, gospel initiative of dealing with the ethnos of the world's uh, race issues, not simply in our own national history, but you root it deeply in the history of humanity, Yes, um, both in terms of its oppression, but also the liberation of the people of God from slavery uh, in Egypt. <clears throat> so it's a very powerful uh, combination to, to root it in, in the history of both oppression and of salvation, uh, but also to now move it to the conversation today. And you've already talked about the benefits you've accrued um, because of what had happened to the Native American communities uh, and where you live. Yeah. Um, so what is your assessment of how the church is doing this work right now? Woo! Well, um, so let me back up just and preface it with this. Whenever I get disappointed or frustrated or melancholy with the church, I read some of Paul's letters. And he says things like this to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Or the Corinthians, you like, well, I'm not like the super apostles. And, and so sanctification is a hard, long process. And then when I get frustrated, I think about Peter. How could Peter be with Jesus and then deny Jesus? How could Peter go to Cornelius's house and say, I see God is not a respecter of person. The Gentiles speak in tongues. They're a part of the new pe people of God. Then he goes to Antioch and he's eating food with Gentiles and a party of James comes to 11 through 22. And Peter gets up from the table to go sit with Jews and it makes Barnabas get carried away. Sanctification is a long, hard process. So, uh, Walter, this is what I think. I think for the great majority of evangelicalism, we think, well, this is a good hobby for people like Derwin and a few others. And No, this is biblical. This is Bible. This is gospel. So I think if we as the church could understand this theology, which is present, it would move us to want to do this. And so uh, we have a thing at our church that we do called uh, building a multi-ethnic church roundtable. We've trained close to 600 leaders over the last 700, uh, seven years. And one of the things that I hear the most is, why didn't I learn this in seminary? Because it's hiding in plain sight. And I believe it's, it's demonic. Also believe that if you begin to take this seriously, there's going to be some people in your church that are very, very angry because they like ethnocentrism. And I think that's why you're seeing such a rise in white Christian nationalism, because it plays into the ethnic pride and prejudice that many people have. This, this challenge that we face in this kind of national conversation, um, 
let's let's tackle this. And maybe you're drawing on uh, your roundtable experience. What have you found to actually be helpful mm-hmm. in moving people who may be skeptical, uh, suspicious, moving them forward? Um, people who are interested but just maybe ignorant, yeah. and then people who really are motivated but are looking for a concrete way forward. You know, like, walk us through these three different types of people. <clears throat> yeah, I think the people of goodwill, but just don't know, they come and they're just overwhelmed with like, I'm not the only one and there is hope. And what I intuitively knew was right, I now have the gospel under pit pinnings. Secondly, you'll have people who go, Pastor, um, I know you're right, but if I took this back to my church, they're going to be people angry. And I'm like, well, good, because you would want them angry with the truth than happy with a lie. And so I think it comes down to this is what we work through is we teach them the theology, primarily using the book of Ephesians. And if you buy my book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, it's it's like it's all there. But we give them the theology and then we move to the best practices. And so the first best practice is this is your leadership team and staff have to reflect the ethnic diversity you want in your church. Um, Even within the multi-ethnic church movement, currently about 90% of the pastors are white. And so it's very few Asians, very few Latinos, very few uh, African-Americans. And so what will happen is you'll have uh, ethnically white cultural churches with a little diversity in it but those people aren't represented. It's almost like they're colorful pictures that hang on a wall mm. instead of actual people who add color and culture to the ethos of the church. And so it has to take place in the leadership. So if people go to transformationchurch.tc, you can see our staff, but that comes from prayer and fasting. Secondly, You have to teach a gospel um, culture within everything that you do. And what I mean by gospel culture is this. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ affects and shape how we see people, how we interact with people, how we make space for people as well. And then um, really learning what cross-cultural learning is. How do I learn about people cross-culturally? So growing up in a predominantly Black Mexican neighborhood, going to a high school that was near a military base with everybody, going to BYU, which is white and Mormon, then going to the NFL, which is diverse, God gave me a lot of experiences so that I've learned how to appreciate different cultures and different types of people so that they know that I'm their pastor. So I'm pro-Jesus, which means I'm pro people. I'm on team Jesus, which which means truth has to guide me and direct me. But cross-cultural competency is so important. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I have a friend. uh, He is Korean. And one time um, I used the word oriental to describe Asian people. And he said, uh, he said, Pastor Derwin, respectfully, oriental is a rug. Mm. And I said, 
what do you mean? So he explained and I was like, bro, I'm so sorry. I had no idea, but now I will never use that again. And now I've come to understand that when you talk about Asian, like there's 34 different East Asian ethnicities with different languages and, and different cultures. And if you go to India, there's different languages and, and different cultures and every language and every culture has the image of God and is worthy of respect. And that beautiful mosaic coming together in Christ produces beauty to the world. So this is not only doxological worship, but it's also spiritual formation and mission. You, you've created this incredible picture for us within the church. Um, I, I want to take us outside of the church. What is the responsibility uh, of the people of God, of the, of the church, for the tensions that exist in our country as a whole? And maybe you could speak to this from your own experience in the NFL. Um, you know, what are, what are the issues that faced uh, you uh, uh, in your time in football that spoke to the inequities uh, that exist in country? And is there a responsibility for Christians to speak into other sectors of society? And if so, how, how could we even go about something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think we, we are called like for me being on mission uh, means not only am I sharing the gospel, but I'm doing what's best for the city as I share the gospel. And so we have a partnership with police departments. We, our church has received an award from the Charlotte Mecklenburg police department for the help that we've done. Um, we're very involved in public schools. We have several church uh, church, churches in correctional facilities. Believers should be involved in every single facet of society to bear witness to the kingdom of God, not a political party, though God uses political parties, but we have to transcend political parties with the kingdom of God. Every believer is called to be a priest that that we are mediating on behalf of God. And so we are to care about um, the fact that a lot of people are in prison, not because they're guilty, but because they couldn't afford a good lawyer and they took a plea deal because they don't want a crummy one. Mm -hmm. uh, we should care about the planet warming because of human beings. Mm -hmm. We sh we should care about immigration. Um, recently, with the NAE, I was in Washington, D.C., something I said I would never do. And I found myself lobbying on behalf of immigration reform on both sides of the aisle because people matter to God, therefore they should matter to us. And so the church gathered is also the church scattered. And as the church scattered, we have unique giftings and unique callings to let our light so shine that our father in heaven would be glorified. And as Matthew 14, uh, 5, 14 says, we're salt and light. Salt preserves, light pushes back to darkness. <clears throat> and so that's what the power of the cross does is it moves us to fulfill the ministry and mission of King Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as I see it, I see uh, believers um, wrap themselves in progressive garments 
And then they wrap themselves in conservative garments. And what I'm saying is we need to wrap ourselves in Christ, which transcends that we need to respect our LGBTQ plus friends while also proclaiming the glory of God in our view of a husband and wife and marriage. I can still honor you and respect you. Uh, we need to talk about the evils of pornography and sex trafficking, but we also need believers to live God-glorifying marriages. We need to talk about um financial inequity, like the subprime lending fiasco where banks caused the problem and banks were too big to fail, yet we paid them to get out of the problem they caused and they give us our money back with interest. Mm. Um, we There isn't a myriad of things that we need to be salt and light in, but we do it with humility. We do it with love. We do it with intelligence and wisdom. Mm-hmm. This is really challenging because you're bringing us to a place in which we really have to see faith touch upon every square inch of existence and that the kingdom of God really is this expansive. Uh, And yet there are times in which we face this vision, uh, this call. It's beautiful, compelling, but honestly, at times it feels incredibly exhausting. So. Leave us with a final thought as we conclude. What would, in our moments of wondering, exhaustion, what final thought would you leave for us to keep us encouraged in this work? Yeah, you know, whenever I find myself getting super exhausted, um, exhausted, Walter, it's because I've tried to do things in my own power. My exhaustion reminds me that I'm not a big deal. Uh, My exhaustion reminds me, Derwin, Jesus never called you to do this in your own strength. But I've been crucified with Christ. There's only I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Though I live in his body, it's by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So my encouragement to you is this is the greatest work of ministry that Jesus wants to do is not through you, but to you. And the fruit of his work in you will be produced through you. Our guest on today's conversation has been Dr. Derwin Gray. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Derwin. National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.